If we have trouble with self-kindness, it's because we were trained to be that way. I believe every person deserves kindness in their lives. I believe kindness has the power to change us from the inside out, to change the world beginning with you and me. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Self-Kindness, Self-Kindness with Pete. It's about figuring out how kindness towards ourselves can be our superpower, how kindness is more than just a reward at the end of the day. It's about living clear lives, focused lives, motivated by loving concern, rather than motivated by fear and anxiety. It's about how we make that change. How does self-kindness show up the moment we need it the most? You are so worthy of the kindness that's already in you. And each week, we'll be exploring how to do that with people who are leading this kindness awakening in their own lives. My name is Pete Sibley, and I'm so grateful you're here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Self-Kindness with Pete. I am Pete Sibley, as always, so grateful that you're here listening. So grateful that we have this time together and that podcasts exist, that conversations like this exist, that you are just taking a moment to check out this thing called self-kindness. I mean, what is self-kindness? Well, it's, a, it's just noticing. It's noticing. You know, it's a beautiful day. I'm noticing here in California and uh, the Central Coast. It's a fall day. I'm noticing that wherever I am in the United States during my <laughs> over my lifetime, fall means leaf blowers. So you can hear that, that drone out there of the leaf blower going. So, so where do you find yourself today? Are you doing your podcast walk? Are you doing the dishes with your podcast? Grateful you're here. If you're a new time listener, welcome. We're checking out this thing called self-kindness. And, you know, just a little disclaimer. Uh, kindness is a pretty big deal. It's not only just that bar of chocolate at the end of the day. It's uh, It really is something that can radically change your life. So that's my little disclaimer for you as a new listener. If you've listened in the past and you're back, welcome back. Thrilled you're here. You know, I always want to take a moment to just remind you that you can rate the show, you can comment about the show, and rating the show means giving it a couple stars in whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And what that does is it's kind of like, you know, in the United States right now, it's election season, and it's kind of like casting a vote. You're casting a vote for this conversation. You are supporting in your way this conversation and saying, hey, you know, an idea like self-kindness matters. And when you do that, uh, it raises, you know, those algorithms out there, it raises this podcast to the top of people's searches. So they're going to find this self-kindness with Pete podcast. And what I am so thrilled about is that thousands of you have already found this podcast. And that tells me we're doing something here. So if you're one of those persons, you're not alone. You're with me. I'm with you. And there's lots of us here. 
So I just, I love how that works. I love, that is one of the things in this crazy year of 2020 that continues to play out, that we are connected, we can be connected, and that uh, that support matters. Supporting yourself, supporting others. So before we get into my guest today, I wanted to just hit a couple things. One is I always like to reflect on a little bit of what's going on in my life experience. And so that looks like today, me asking you, what are you telling yourself today? What are you telling yourself today? I'm all about, as you know, noticing the thoughts that's going, that are running through our minds at any given moment. And how I get there is I use my emotions and my feelings. They can always bring me back. If I get still, I can say, why am I feeling this? And my mind is now trained to answer that question because I am thinking I should da 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 da. Or because, you know, my kids should da 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 da. Or because... They aren't. He is. I'm not. So what are you telling yourself? Are you going hard on yourself today? I feel like it's in the air right now. Something out there where we're particularly going hard. (laughs) Maybe our our brains are kind of like, oh, this is the end of the year. Might as well get (laughs) all those uh, self self, uh negative self-talk thoughts out there. Let's do it right now. You know, are you going hard on yourself? Now, I'm not in a podcast where I'm just going to say, go easy on yourself. I'm going to ask you to take a look at that. You know, it's been my experience that my hard thoughts, they can start to spin. They can spin out and they can start to pull me down. And I have found working with beautiful people, working with coaches and therapists, that part of my life journey has been to work with depression. Uh, And so when I have those thoughts, I don't say, oh, you need to change. You need to get out of here. Something needs to change right now. No, I allow it. I allow it to have its space. And what I witness, having been there, is that there is a little bit of room. There is a little bit of support when I'm ready to see it. You know, I may be having really heavy-duty thoughts in my head, but when I ask myself to just notice, notice how I'm being supported by a chair right now, or maybe notice how the ground is underneath my feet. So I might be having a thought like something has got to change. And something as simple as noticing that the ground is beneath me, that birds are flying, that I'm still breathing, it offers a little bit of space. And guess what? 
That is self-kindness. So when I say self-kindness, I'm talking about a really big freaking deal in your life. And my guest today really talks about that. I mean, she has gone through, suffered through some really heavy-duty stuff. But what she speaks about is where that took her, what that brought to her. And she talks about a clarity that can visit us in those bottom moments. So we're cruising along here, but I want to tell you how I'm putting this into action with people. I want to tell you about my self-kindness coaching, why I believe it's right for you as a listener of this podcast, Self-Kindness with Pete, and why I am so passionate about working with people. It's because if you're feeling that stuckness, if you're noticing your mind is thinking too much, if you feel unable to control your emotions or feeling challenges at work or in a relationship, if you sometimes are feeling just out of sorts, or that self-talk is just really ramping up and being negative and beating you up. I mean, if you've done a lot of personal growth work, read the self-help books, checked out and worked with people in the past, but still notice that there's either more room for growth or you don't feel like you're living in that space of potential, living in a big, fearless, purposeful, peaceful place, then you've got to sign up for self-kindness coaching. Self-kindness coaching is my multi-month one-on-one coaching where I teach you how to know your mind, how to create this life that you have always wanted. Now, I know this because it's what I've done with myself, and now I have done with so many others. Just like every person that I've interviewed on this podcast, time and time again, they're pointing to massive change happens in the world and in our lives when it begins with us. We always need to start with us. And where do we start with us? We start with us by noticing this amazing body suit that we're living in right now and by noticing this truly amazing mind. It is. It really is amazing. So that's why coaching is so effective. It's because it goes right to the cause, our minds. And no matter what work you've done in the past, I believe my self-kindness coaching is for you. I really, really believe that. (laughs) So you can find out more about how to do self-kindness coaching and begin that journey right now by either going to the link in the bio or in the show notes of this episode or by going to petesibley.com slash coaching petesibley.com slash coaching for more info so i've just told you about my one-on-one coaching I've told you where we'll go because I've been there. I've told you 
how we're going to do it because I've walked it so many times now. And I told you why it's important. Because self-kindness is how everything changes. It affects everything. It's not such a little thing. And I'm so excited that you and so many listeners out there are waking up to that fact. So petesibly.com slash coaching or check out the link in the episode notes here. So we're going to get to my guest now. And before we, I introduce her, have a quick pause to listen to some beautiful people in this Central California coast area that are supporters and believers of self-kindness. They're doing it themselves, I know, because I talk to these people. And I want to give them a moment and a highlight right now, right here in the show, to put some loving on them. Because this is what it's about. This is what we're doing here, people. We are stepping into this, and we're going to make this a beautiful place. So here's some folks doing that. Self-Kindness with Pete is supported and caffeinated by Captain and Stoker Coffee Roasters, located at 398 East Franklin Street in Monterey, California. And if you're not local, you can hop on captainandstoker.com and order up a bag, brew up a cup today. So why don't you love on them a little bit? They're great supporters of Self-Kindness with Pete. Grab a great cup of coffee. Thanks, Captain and Stoker. Self-Kindness with Pete is supported by Union Yoga Monterey. They're now offering beach yoga classes at the Tides Hotel if you're here locally in Monterey. And you can sign up for all of this at unionyoga-monterey.com. So I'm loving it. Thank you, Union Yoga. Thanks for your support. So my guest today is Catherine Standiford, author of Lightning Flowers, My Journey to Uncover the Cost of Saving a Life which O Magazine, which we all know is Oprah's Magazine, recently named one of its 10 titles to pick up now. Standifer's work previously appeared in The Best American Essays 2016. She was a Logan Nonfiction Fellow at the Cary Institute for Global Good and a Marion Weber Healing Arts Fellow at the Mesa Refuge. She earned her MFA in Creative Nonfiction Writing at the University of Arizona and now teaches in Ashland, MFA program. As a trauma writing doula, she accompanies nonfiction writers through the underworld experience of extracting difficult stories from the body. She lives on a juniper pinion studded mesa in New Mexico with her chickens and excitedly awaiting the arrival of Lightning Flowers, which comes out on November 10th. I know you're going to love this interview with Catherine Staniford. So, welcome. Catherine Standifer to Self-Kindness with Pete. I am really excited for our conversation today. Thank you. I'm so excited as well. Yeah. So I wanted to start it off a little bit different than I normally do. And I asked you and you said yes. I really would love it if you would share with our guest uh, from your new book, Lightning Flowers, just read the prologue to get us into this conversation today, if you would. That would be great. I would love that. Thanks, Pete. So this is the prologue that opens the book. 
Prologue, Tucson, Arizona, 2012. Nothing can prepare you for what it feels like to be shocked by an implanted cardioverter defibrillator. Like a badly spliced film reel, my memory of the night is fractured. In one instant, a player on the other intramural soccer team has fallen and the game stopped. He was getting up, brushing his thighs. In the next, my hands became claws. A maul cracked open my chest with a sickening thump, a hot whip tearing through my back. Did somebody kick in my spine? And then I knew, and I was screaming. There's no way you wouldn't scream if you felt it, my sister had said. By then, the defibrillator had been in my body for three silent years, resting loyally above my left breast, keeping watch for the arrhythmia that could send me to the ground unconscious, with a heart quivering rather than pumping blood. Now, on a crisp November night in Tucson, Arizona, I dropped to my knees in time for the second shock. What if it doesn't stop? I knew something was wrong, either with the device or with my body, but probably my ICD. If it was an arrhythmia, I should have been collapsed, unconscious, not sharp and alive like this, staring at the backs of houses at the edge of the field, their kitchen lights spilling dully out the windows as I screamed. Call 911. A third shock. You can either scream or breathe, a voice inside me said. And I began to pull in air, cold, heavy breaths, the way I'd learned to breathe into pain in yoga. I am either alive or dead, and I choose which. The device did not fire again. Can I get someone behind me? I called out. I don't trust myself not to fall. Someone cupped my back immediately, supported me to the ground, and the sky came into view. A ring of faces, the sharp white field lights, the smell of burning, which was me. There is a kind of dream state that settles over the body in these moments, a clarity that rarely visits us when our lives are busy unfolding. For lying on my back, looking at the stars, a question lodged itself in my brain, a wild constellation of if-then statements. If the defibrillator just saved my life, if a defibrillator is just metal, if metal is mind-earth, if children sometimes work in mines, if tunnels collapse, if warlords profit, if women are raped, if mountains are dismantled and made toxic, if mind-earth just saved my life, was it worth it? The thin branched burns that uncoil from the heads and necks of lightning strike victims are sometimes called lightning flowers. Fern-like, following the patterns of rain or sweat, they are rose-colored lightning bolts frozen onto the body, as beautiful as they are terrible. I will never know what my insides looked like after 2,000 volts, if my tissue erupted into lightning flowers of the body cavity, a sudden bloom. What I do know is that the night I took three shocks to the heart, I was marked called into the world in a way I could not turn away from. What can save us, I would learn, never comes without cost. Some people say lightning strikes cure blindness. This is my version. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that, for writing that, for putting that into the world. Um, like I said, welcome to Self-Kindness with Pete, and what a place to start. You know, I love how you were able to, in that moment, witness some of those thoughts running through your mind, that clarity. Do you mind introducing what you do in the world, mm. how you are kind of moving in the world, uh, and also just why are you curious about having this conversation around self-kindness? Mm. 
That's such a great place to start. And thank you for inviting me to read part of the book. Um, the book is really at the center of both the way that I have lived my own self-kindness journey in the world and also what I have to say about self-kindness sort of in a broader frame. Mm. And so it feels really correct to have it sort of sit at the center of our conversation. So when I was 24 years old, I was living in Jackson, Wyoming, which of course is where we met. Mm -hmm. And I was um, practicing for an upcoming gig with a guitarist who I was in a band with. And I ran outside to take a phone call in the middle of Uncle John's band. <laughs> and <laughs> when I woke up, I didn't know who I was or where I was. And mm -hmm. it was a really seemingly long time before I could move or speak. And by the time I could move or speak, I did know that I was um, outside this man's house and lying in a parking lot. And I knew too that I probably had the heart condition that I referred to in the prologue. It's called long QT syndrome. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if, if I was 24, it had been a little over a year and a half since my younger sister got diagnosed with long QT syndrome as well after she went into cardiac arrest repeatedly. Mm. And that moment formed, I really view it as almost a rebirth experience that some version of me died in that parking lot and a different version of me was born. And for me, self-kindness really is embedded in what it meant to be a young person who suddenly became aware that we can all die at every moment of every day. And that can sound a little dramatic when you say it that way, but we live in a society that um, really trains us to think that we control things that we don't control. And to be alive is actually to be within a fundamental contingency. And when I was thinking about self-kindness in advance of this conversation, I was really thinking about how if we have trouble with self-kindness, it's because we were trained to be that way. It's because mm -hmm. we, you know, we don't get mad at kids who've never learned to tie their shoelaces when they can't tie their shoelaces. And we live in a society that assumes that we will be able to execute our lives with a kind of foresight or perfection. I mean, sub in here, any, any shame right, trigger word, right? right? Um, we're somehow assumed to live uh, in a more, in a less messy way, I guess, than right. what life actually is. Yeah, and, right. You know, that, that, that makes me, the word that came to mind was almost robotic, right? Without yeah. feelings. Yeah. Like, if we could get rid of the feelings and the emotions, like, it would be <laughs> really effective, right, uh, at our yeah. to-do lists. So, yeah. 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 So I really, um, in having to come into my own body's ability or my, my own inability to control my body, right, my, the requirement that I live um, in relationship to wilder, and less controlled forces. I really, uh, I would say, first began to learn self-kindness out of these health experiences in which I was really hard on myself as though I could have prevented what happened, as though mm. I could somehow make a choice that would make this easier for everyone in my life. Um, and that's 
in relation to everything from really tough hospital stays where I almost died to the fact that I was uninsured the day that I passed out in that parking lot and the year Mm. was 2009. So the Affordable Care Act hadn't yet been passed. And I ended up having to quit my life and move from Jackson to Boulder, Colorado, where there was a surgeon who said he would help me. And so it was this intensely logistical um, period of my life where I was just trying to find a way to uh, be less of a burden on other people. And (laughs) that's a hard way to Mm -hmm. view being 24 and almost dying, right? That's pretty rough. (laughs) And there were a lot of things I wanted from the people around me that because they hadn't ever had to work on their own relationship with death, they actually couldn't offer me. And so self-kindness became a path um, that grew very essentially out of the fact that to live through some of the experiences I had and not be on your own team Mm. is just it's too brutal. It's unsurvivably right. brutal. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So much in what you're, you're saying. Um, and you know, I, I feel like that's, I hear that a lot from people that I'm in conversation with and that I work with around self-kindness. Um, that idea of being a burden on others, mm-hmm. um, it weighs heavy. Um, I know, uh, this might be a, a sweeping statement that, that I feel like it shows up a lot more in women, but a lot of men carry it uh, again, maybe that we've been trained that not to be a burden. And, you know, the people that I'm talking to, a lot of times it's, it's around something like they want to follow a dream or a passion, but they feel like it would be a burden on their family or, you know, they want to be creative Mm -hmm. and do some art or something like that. But what you're talking about, I think really, you know, is metaphorically what I'm talking about with these other people. I mean, that this is a, it's a life question to step into that, that purpose and that excitement in a person's life. But for you, it really was a question of life and death. And the fact that being a burden on other people showed up in that moment <laughs> is mind-blowing. Right. That you don't deserve to live if you're burdening somebody else by asking for that, that right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you put it that way, Pete, because it actually made my mind flicker to the slightly more structural version of that question. You know, the summer of 2009, um, it, it ended up being five months between when I passed out in the parking lot and when I finally had an implanted cardiac defibrillator implanted, which, Mm. Um, is a, I have a very complicated relationship to my ICD and I'm not sure it's a life-saving technology for me. And so that is, it's a complicated finish line Mm -hmm. to be happy about. But at the time, you know, I had lived for five months expecting to die every day. And so to have this piece of technology inside me was a great relief in some way. And that was the same summer that as a society, we were debating the Affordable Care Act. And I was having to listen to politicians talk on the radio about um, why I shouldn't have access to health care. And mm. so I mm. think this sense of illness as a burden, illness as an aberration, needing care as somehow shameful is embedded into all layers of our lives. It's a part of our public life as much as our private relationships. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the book begins with this prologue in which 
I'm setting off on this journey to understand the device that's already inside me. And by that point, by the time I took those shocks to the heart, I'd already had the device for three years. And so I'd lived sort of a preliminary story throughout my 20s in which um, I had gotten very ill, including almost dying of sepsis at one point. And then I had really like come back to life. And so this was um, this period after I took those shocks to the heart, I really had this crisis around like, what am I carrying and how am I complicit in other people's suffering in this world? And how do Mm. I weigh my own suffering against other people's suffering, right? Like how truly, how do I value my own life? If, Mm. if other lives, whether plant or animal or human were negatively impacted. And so I went on several journeys. Um, I visited mines in Madagascar and South Africa and Rwanda and spent just a lot of years digging into those experiences after I had them and doing other forms of research. And I didn't expect that my own story would continue. I kind of thought I'd had like this first period of difficulty and then I was going on this journey and that would be the whole book. And then Mm. in 2016, I ended up needing to get my device replaced because the battery alerted us that it was um, low. And we actually discovered I had that one of the wires inside me had broken and we did a surgery to try to remove that broken wire. And during that surgery, it actually snapped off. Um, And I now have a stripped nest of wire in my heart. And so, you know, one of the things I knew that I wanted to bring to this conversation is that this book has taken me eight years to write. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Part of that is because all these things happened halfway through that then like had to become a part of the book. But those Mm -hmm. things that happened were also really traumatic. And you know, one of the things I do in life, other than being a writer myself, is that I call myself a trauma writing doula. I help other writers mm. walk through the underworld journey of moving these really difficult stories through their bodies. And I can tell you that so much of what gets in the way for those folks, as got in the way for me, is a lack of self-kindness, mm. that we expect these stories should move at a certain pace, should come out of us quickly. We should be able to put it on the calendar and write our 2000 words a day and push through. And there's just a whole mythology around um, how the hard work of writing overlays onto stories that really require a lot of tenderness toward ourselves in order to move through Mm -hmm. the body. And Mm -hmm. so when you hold my book in your hands, what you're really holding is something that I had to birth through very painful contractions like any other form of birth in which I really had to go back into scenes that are brutal and hold space for myself and, Mm. um, and understand that those stories actually won't come out if you're not in self-kindness, your body will hold them in and, kind of protect you from them. And where I was able to finally write some of those things was when I was able to say, you know what? After writing this scene, I get to sleep the rest of the day because that's what my body is asking of me. The Mm. self-kindness of um, facing really brutal things and actually having the room to then tend to yourself and not believe that it's like a military march. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I, I always find that fascinating 
um, I feel like part of the the guidance that, like you're talking about, in my own journey, I needed to walk myself through, um, that I now walk other people through, is not using that, you know, I like to call it the ass kicker motivation to be self-kind. It's like, it's, it's, it's counterproductive. It's like, you know, I'm going to be kind to myself and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to kick my <laughs> butt into shape. <laughs> You're going to be kind here. You know, it's, right. it's amazing that we do that to ourselves. Yeah. So. You know, my mentor, Eve Bradford always says, nothing happens through discipline. Things only happen through love. Hmm. And I was thinking wow. about this in terms of the central question of the book, because one of the sacred responsibilities I hold having written this book is helping people hold the question of how am I accountable for the products in my life? How is my relationship to objects a moral one? And mm. what's there's a way in which like we can be so hard on ourselves about our sustainability choices and like, yes, we need self-kindness there. But I actually found myself really thinking about how when we're in that harsh energy, the constriction of that, I think actually keeps us from being with the kind of um, tenderness that allows for longer term solutions to take place. I think there's a small group of people for whom harshness might work for a little while and you might see mm -hmm. some, mm -hmm. some like good sustainability outcomes. But by um, being in relationship to all of these mining companies on the other side of the world who are trying to run corporate social responsibility projects in the areas that they've impacted, one of the things I really saw was that you can, you can never predict all of the outcomes of your actions. And so there's a kind of rigidity of good intention that often leads to some of the big messes. You have to be mm. able to say, wow, that's not what we were trying to do and stay vulnerable. And Brene Brown, um, the social work researcher, talks a lot about how mm. our worthiness is not contingent upon anything. We are inherently worthy. And when we're in a hustle for worthiness, that's where things get a little defensive. That's where things get hollow. That's where there's not room to grow. And so there's a way in which um, what I found myself really wanting of mining companies, which is hard within a capitalist structure, is to be vulnerable enough to be dynamic with these communities, to be able to say, like, we're going to try our best. And if it doesn't work out, we're going to make it right. And mm -hmm. to not be in that form of rigidity and harshness. And so I think when people don't have self-kindness uh, already as a practice and they take on some kind of external sustainability measure, they don't have the room to move in the way that's necessary. Mm. And there's a sort of um, reverence that we can have for ourselves that mirrors the attention and the reverence that we bring to the rest of the world and that allows for the kinds of non-trivial actions and real reckonings with the self, right? Like it takes mm -hmm. self-kindness to then be able to really see yourself and say, mm -hmm. buddy, I love you. And I need to hold you to a higher standard here. Like how mm -hmm. can, how can we go forward in a way that um, is more in alignment with our values? Mm -hmm. That kind of bravery requires self-kindness and otherwise it's short term and it's shut down. And so I think you know, I really came to find that um, having an implanted cardiac defibrillator for a lot of like, 
personal medical reasons that we probably don't have time to get into here, I'm not sure I will have an ICD in the future. But it's not just because there are resources required to make it, right? Because there are resources required to make everything in our lives. And one Mm. side effect of going on this journey was to really be able to view the minerals or the mountains in my body as sacred and my own life as deserving of of being saved. But I think in having a self-kindness toward myself uh, that takes into account how much we don't control, I've ended up having a kind of um, acceptance of the way sometimes we it's like we're so involved with the idea of preventing death that we don't see the small ways in which we're creating death. And so it's not that I don't value my own life. It's that I value these other lives as well. And, and am more in conversation with how to live the life that I have on any given day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it sounds like, I feel like you're just speaking the wisdom that has been gleaned over the millennia that to really understand and be heart-centered mm. uh, living, uh, it can only we can only reflect that to the level in the degree which we have known and live it in our own lives. So, mm. um, yeah, you know there there are some words that you used in there that when I think of corporations. I feel like I would project onto them this I, bristling, mm. Um, mm-hmm. tenderness, mm-hmm. vulnerability. <laughs> Th- those words, you know, even as a as as a man, like that has been a lot of my own personal self growth is and self kindness is those words actually represent uh, a strength. They actually represent a, a depth of capacity. Yeah. Um, and I've had that conversation with several uh, male guests that have appeared on the show that as if we're presenting as male in this lifetime, those are a lot of the stories that go along that vulnerability, tenderness, yeah. you know, that's, that's okay around babies and little kids, <laughs> <laughs> but not when you're running a Fortune 500 company. No. Yeah. You just really nailed it. You know? I really, in the months since I turned this book into my publisher, have been thinking a lot about how it's actually about our ability to see other beings and our ability to feel seen. And so much of what happens within the medical system in my story is the result of not being seen. One of the hardest um, scenes of the book is when I wake up from that surgery in which they have tried to extract the broken wire and it has snapped off. And uh, they do these surgeries intravascularly. And so they're coming down into my heart from above through a vein to do that. And so when it snapped off, they had to make a femoral incision and go up from below and try to tug on this wire from another angle. And it didn't work. And the surgeon who performed this procedure never came to see me in the night that followed. And when you have a femoral incision, they have to get a clot to form because the femoral artery pulses every time the heart beats because it's getting fresh blood pumped through it. And so it's very easy to bleed out if they don't get a um, blood clot to form. So 
what they did was table clamp me and basically use a C clamp and clamp me to the bed at my groin. It was the most painful thing I've ever been through. It was the hardest scene of the book to write by far. And then you have to lie still for six hours. Um, And this long night in which I didn't know what had happened to my body. I had heard these pieces of the fact that the wire broke off, but no one came to tell me what had happened to me. And there, there was a sensation unlike any other in this waiting and this not knowing and this feeling in my body that things were very wrong, but not having a story. And it wasn't until the next morning, like actually the attending physician in the, um, on that hospital floor that night didn't know why I was there. She asked me why I was there. I don't know if she just didn't read my chart or what, but um, it wasn't until the representative from the defibrillator company, my St. Jude medical rep came by and he's the one who told me, and he wasn't even employed by the hospital. And Mm. so I really, um, in thinking about tenderness and vulnerability, I've been thinking about how masculine capitalism is, how masculine colonization is, how so many of the practitioners who were unable to see me at these particular times, I really had to ask myself, can this surgeon, is this surgeon really just so busy and he's sort of operating on, um, you know, some normal mode in which he just blitzes from room to room. And and I have empathy for the way our medical system forces people to act that way. Uh, but I also had to wonder, can he bear to look me in the face? And it's not that I needed an apology for the fact that the wire snapped under his hand. That could have happened to anyone. It's that I wanted to be together in that moment. I needed him to see what it meant for me and what my life would be going forward. And when I booked an appointment with him after that failed surgery, his PA showed up to see me instead of him. And there was just a real lack of resolution where I wondered like, what is going on inside him? You know, Mm. how, Mm -hmm. how does a lack of self-kindness, a, there's such a culture within medicine of death being viewed as a failure or, Obviously, this was a failed surgery. It just was. Mm-hmm. And and what room does a person like that have for himself? And if he doesn't have room for himself in that moment, how can he possibly show up to me as a patient? And so mm-hmm. I think it's self-kindness is such a personal thing, but public life is an accrual of these personal decisions, these ways we meet ourselves or don't and therefore act in the world. Right. Right. And you said something earlier about, about this and I'll circle, circle back that accrual, boy, that's such a good way to phrase it because, you know, it's, it's like on, we understand on some level, some intellectual level that, that we only ever are living in this moment. Like we get that on some level. And at some, some moments, I feel some of us at our, at our better moments, when we land there, we feel that peace that passes understanding mm. when we're really just able to land and fully be in this moment. Mm. And what I'm always fascinated by is that it's always ever only this moment, even mm. if I'm carrying all of my past and all of my future with me, I'm only ever doing it right now. 
And so that accrual that you talked about, you said something before we start recording that you are now witnessing and experiencing that your personal practice ends up opening what what can appear to be you know solutions and uh to these larger macro level think you know i look at our world and really in my through my lens it's like wow self-kindness could dramatically dramatically change our planet yeah yeah and all it takes is each person being you know responsible and open to that kindness in themselves anyway again i i'm I'm stepping off into into some territory, but <laughs> something you said brought that up, and I think it refers to it refers to the physician yeah. in that relationship. Is you know my self kindness practice does the work that I need that he wasn't able to do, and I'm saying my like I'm you, yes. so That's right. uh, you know so your kindness practice for you and that work does what he wasn't able to yeah to give in that moment and that i feel like is it's just so vital and we just as a culture it feels like we're just we bowl over that understanding all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. that you know how essential our work to clean it up is yeah every good healer i've ever had has known acutely that we only ever heal ourselves and Mm -hmm. they're excellent space holders and they're guides and maybe their touch opens the way for our own touch you know in these years of intense trauma I can tell you that since those surgeries there there was a period of close to a year where I could barely walk I mean a lot of crazy things happened with my body um and I just ran five miles up a mesa yesterday and so I can tell Mm. you how much transformation has unfolded and really also just want to say that I hold space for those whose able-bodiedness in whatever way has never returned and that that has to be a part of their self-kindness practice too because Mm -hmm. I really was ready to maybe have lost a lot of things that I loved like maybe they just weren't ever coming back Um, but I have learned in these years how to hold my own body Um, you know I've been single for this whole period and um I hold my own face. I hold my own hand. There's there's a different tending to the self truly that comes out of not being tended to. And one thing I really wanted to bring up is that um, back to what I said at the beginning about how we are this way because we were taught to be this way. It's hard right. because we weren't taught how to be self-kind by right. and large, most of us. Um, I think there's a real gaslighting that can go on when we're dealing with particular systems um, again, related to like what something like capitalism feels like in the body. I have had a lot of medical trauma related to being on the phone with billing agencies, appointment mm. schedulers, these sort of people who control whether or not you have access to life-saving care, you know, insurance mm. approval systems. And they seem so mundane and Actually, it is, it triggers fight or flight in me because it was literally life or death. And I have trouble even calling an airline because (laughs) it's Mm. the same system of waiting and depersonalization and the rules are what the rules are, ma'am, and this sort of Mm -hmm. um, not being seen again. And I really had to learn 
that the fact that I would escalate and become hysterical and in the end, inappropriately, um, you know, be verbally violent on whatever spectrum, whether just mm. with sort of a toxic anger or by actually swearing. But I would unleash some of this toxicity on these poor folks who like, it's, you know, it's not their fault. They're just a cog in a system. They're just mm. on the other end of the line. But I think I viewed myself as a monster in those moments because I knew that what I was doing was so inappropriate. And also the path to self-kindness was understanding that I was actually appropriately responding to something. So mm. even though this person, this individual did not deserve that toxic anger, the system itself had absolutely, it was gaslighting me. You know, it was crazy making to think mm. that this is normal and this is okay. And you should be totally calm and just keep calling repeatedly for months trying to get something done that they can't get done or they keep denying. Like that system is not functioning and it's not humane. And for me, self-kindness and sort of facing my own monstrousness meant acknowledging that sometimes hysteria is the liberator of authenticity. Mm. And I think this is really important at this social moment in the mm. U.S. because we can't think about racism without understanding that hysteria is the liberator of authenticity, that when people are as angry as they have been, it's because they've been told over and over that the injuries they're suffering are normal and okay. And they're not normal and they're not okay. And they're not being heard through other means. And so how long can you not be heard before you start screaming? Mm -hmm. And that's really what happened to me. And I had this amazing trauma therapist who we basically spent three years working together just to establish the fact that I wasn't crazy. And once I wasn't crazy, I actually gained a lot more ability to handle those phone calls, to like spend time mm -hmm. with myself beforehand, getting grounded, giving, making sure I was totally nourished and sort of using self-kindness, self-talk to get through some of the places that were really snaggly. It doesn't mean that the system has been fixed. The system still needs to be fixed. Right, but, right. Um, but I'm very clear now that it's actually the response is not crazy. <laughs> the response <laughs> makes so much sense. It's just, um, you know, this kind of impenetrability that, uh, yeah, sometimes when we're hating ourselves, there's really something else to look at mm, that mm, we're hating. Mm. <laughs> right. When I first asked myself, how would I define self-kindness? What came immediately to mind is that self-kindness is a fundamental generosity around the way we tell our story mm. and, the, and therefore the way we live our story, right? Because we're telling ourselves a story about our lives all the time. Katie, I, I just love this conversation. I knew it was going to be just so, so special to reconnect with you and to to get your thoughts. So I'm so grateful that you took the time to share. So how do people find out about your book when it's coming out? Um, how do we get in touch with you out there uh, in the wide world? Yay. So my book is called Lightning Flowers, My Cost to Uncover, <laughs> my, my Cost, My Journey to Uncover the Cost of Saving a Life. 
And it is out on November 10th from Little Brown Spark. You can purchase it from literally any bookseller, although I will encourage you to support independent bookstores during this time because they really, really need our support. And um, if you're having trouble with their websites, try bookshop.org, which is the new um, online retailer that supports indie bookstores. Mm. Uh, my website is katherinestandifer.com. And so you can find more about me there, especially if you're interested in trauma writing doula services or any of the classes I might be teaching. And there will be an events page up there with a lot of different bookstore events um, and other podcast interviews. So mm-hmm. hopefully well, lots of good stuff to come. Oh my goodness. I know there will be. Uh, you, it's an inspiring journey that you, you've said yes to. You didn't ask to be on it, but you said <laughs> yes. And, and that's just so, so special to connect with you. Thanks for sharing and wish you all the best uh, success with this new book. Thank you so much, Pete. It was so fun. Hmm. Wow. I mean, Catherine's leading by example is exactly why I wanted to create this podcast. So much in what she shared. Uh, if you didn't catch it all, you know, I invite you to go back and listen to parts of that again. I felt like there were so many things that she said in there that could be pulled out and highlighted and just be a quote all by themselves. So, so grateful that you took the time to listen today. And again, if there was anything in this podcast that served you, would you share it with another person? Would you take a moment to rate the show, to leave a comment, to help get this self-kindness conversation out there? You know, I know you have so much that you can be doing. There are so many options available to us. And I am eternally grateful that you take the time to listen to a conversation that explores these ideas. I'm so grateful that you are the kind of person in the world that would do that. That would do that for supporting me and my guests. That would do that to support a world that embraces uh, an energy of kindness and compassion and empathy and that you would do that for yourself, that I know it affects the people around you. So thank you for doing that. I'm going to leave you with another song of Anna Mines. I'll see you next week. Love you and be kind. Till next time. Hey, self-kindness with Pete listener. If you're feeling stuck, thinking too much, unable to control emotions, feeling challenges at work or in relationships. Maybe you're feeling out of sorts. That self-talk is ramping up and constantly negative. If you've done personal work in the past but still don't feel like you're living that potential, your potential, living a big, fearless, purposeful, and peaceful life, then you got to sign up for my self-kindness coaching. Self-kindness coaching is my monthly one-on-one coaching where I'm going to teach you how to know your mind and to create the life you've always wanted. Don't be fooled into thinking because it has kindness in the title that it's not insanely effective. Actually, the opposite is true. You know, just like every person who speaks in this podcast, 
massive change in the world begins within us. That's why this coaching, self-kindness coaching, is so effective and efficient because it goes directly to the cause. No matter what work you've done in the past, my self-kindness coaching is for you and will change your life. Go to petesibley.com coaching for more info or click the link in the show notes. And can't wait to hear from you. The wall is coming down.